Welcome to Under the Fig Tree Podcast with hosts Reverend Dr. Ben Haupt and Reverend Micah Glenn. In today's episode, Ben and Micah sit down with a special guest as they meditate under the fig tree. What's up, what's up, what's up? Welcome back once again to another episode of Under the Fig Tree. I'm your host, Reverend Micah Glenn, the Director of Recruitment here at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Of course, joined by my highly esteemed co-host, Reverend Dr. Ben Haupt. I almost said Ben Jammin, but I think once... Yeah, anyway. It's what everybody said when I was a kid. Right. How are you, bro? <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> ben Jammin. I, or, that's better than Benji. That was my other nickname as a kid, and oh, that was even worse. Benji's so. awful. I mean, like if you'd have grown up around me and my friends, Ben Jammin would have been a sign of respect. Well, plus uh, you're too you're too young for this. I'm I'm much older than you, uh, but uh, there's there's this movie Benji about a dog. Oh, yeah, uh, a kind of mangy, sickly looking dog, and and so I think the I think my classmates knew exactly what they I were see. doing when they they called me Benji. Yeah, <laughs> but like, it, but but Benji is kind of one of those heartfelt stories. If Memories, but I get it though. Yeah, yeah, what, yeah, a ter- yeah. what a terrible thing those <laughs> those kids in cruel, Fort Wayne, right. Indiana. A plague upon them. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> right. I like Elijah, right, calling down the the, the she bears on the uh, forty two youth. Um, I am not doing that, listeners. I love uh, all people, and I am reconciled with the people I, that gave me a hard time as a child. For the most part. <laughs> for the most yeah, part. Yeah, I was preaching at a high school once, and I used that text. I don't know how well it actually went. I I don't, I'm, I don't know how preachable that text is, but, oh, but I tried. Well, you've the got Bible kind of is the full hair of all kinds of stuff. Well, oh. I had a little more hair back then. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, man. Okay, let's get into the podcast. Our special guest. Yeah. <laughs> we have with us, we're going to laugh a lot today, I think, and that's great. We have with us uh, Dr. Joel Alowski. Uh, as I was uh, preparing to, uh, to introduce him, I noticed that he has a Google knowledge panel. If you Google Joel Olowski, he actually shows up like as this public profile figure. And he is. That's um, that that really is the case. So uh, Dr. Olowski is a professor of historical theology here at Concordia Seminary. He's also the dean of advanced studies. He oversees all of our advanced studies programs. He is the director for the Center for the Study of Early Christian Texts. He's the coordinator of the International Seminary Exchange Program. He's the general editor for the Ancient Christian Commentary Series. He is big into church fathers, big into uh, reading the Bible along with uh, other Christians who have been reading the Bible for a much longer time than people in the the 20th, 21st century. And... um, he has a, a career as, well, he started out his ministry as a mission developer, so right. he is, um, has, has a heart for mission and reaching out to the lost. Um, he he uh, did his, his graduate work under um, the uh, now sainted, but certainly very uh, well-known uh, theologian, Thomas Oden, mm-hmm. at uh, Drew University. And so it is um, a high privilege and honor to have Dr. Alaski with us on Under the Fig Tree podcast, and just to have him here at Concordia Seminary. Absolutely, I think is um, one of these one of these treasures that uh, Concordia Seminary can say when somebody says to us, "What you got?" I'm I'm plunking down a Joel Alaski trump card. <laughs> 
I don't know. Uh, you know, I think there's a few other cards out there that would uh, trump it. <laughs> I, I was, yeah, we got a royal flush at this place yeah, when yeah, it comes yeah, to yeah. our faculty members. Yeah, uh, exactly. But but the number of publications, uh, you might be able to give Robert Kolb a run for his money. Yeah, but so. um, but you and Dr. Kolb um, and maybe a few others are, have have published significantly, and your names are known outside of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, not because uh, your voice is uh, just to people outside the Missouri Synod, but because your voice has carried beyond the Missouri Synod, uh, but with our theology. Another thing that I, uh, we haven't let you talk yet, so I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> Another thing that I know I like about Dr. Olowski is that uh, he, he um, spent, has spent a lot of time talking with uh, Christians of other denominations in theological conversations and representing kind of a Reformation perspective to, um, uh, well, you can tell us a little bit more about that, but there, you've been involved in a lot of well, ecumenical conversations representing the Book of Concord and the Augsburg Confession uh, to the, the wider uh, church. Well, I have to say, when we talked about the church, for instance, I was... Uh, kind of informing them about a very biblical definition of the church. And I was trying to do it, you know, how should we say, on the down low, you know. And uh, when I was finished, there happened to be uh, one pastor there who was actually from Lutheran background. And he says to me, he says to everybody, well, that's just Augustana 7. And I said, you know, shh, you know, because <laughs> I, I knew it was a wonderful treasure that we have. Right. But, you know, we don't have to, it's simply just recognized as scriptural. So um, it was a wonderful example of where our Lutheran ethos, our tradition, our, you know, Theology really is um, practical as well as yeah. um, I would even say ecumenical in that sense, you know. And what what group is that that, that was having these ecumenical conversations? I know yeah. there's official kind of. Well, it was a dialogue this. between the World Evangelical Alliance and the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity. So they had invited me to speak the Vatican uh, paper on Scripture and tradition. So I was able to give very much the. Lutheran approach and um I'm, wait I'm sorry I'm just did you say at the Vatican yeah yeah I mean okay we just gave a paper at the Vatican you know like you do it, just you said it so casually it threw me off. well I mean you know it was back I don't forget when but you know it was just one of those things the Vatican appreciated our books so sure. you know, we had an audience with John Paul II where he gave his blessing because he was like this is a great tool for Catholics to get back to the early mm -hmm. church. And you'd yeah. think, well, the Catholics and the Orthodox should know the early church, but um, they're not reading their own tradition oh. when, you know, we've been benefiting from it. So yeah. I just kind of reacquainted them with it. Look at that. So. What was it like to study under Thomas Oden? Oh, it was wonderful, you know, yeah. and, and it's interesting because I didn't know him from Adam mm. when I was a student here. Yeah. Uh, it was one of my mentors here, uh, Paul Robbie. Uh, I was writing uh, my STM thesis, which today would be considered a dissertation, I can tell you, being dean of the graduate school. <laughs> <clears throat> but that time it was only a thesis <laughs> of 250 pages oh, wow. on the history of interpretation of all things of Obadiah. Mm. <laughs> he just happened to be writing a commentary on Obadiah for the Anchor Bible series, which uh, he was very kind to let me be part of that. But he had said, you should go see this guy out in New Jersey who's uh, working on this new thing. Uh, you know, it's, it's seeing what the early church had to say about scripture. So I went out there after I was, uh, you know, called as a mission developer. And I, um, I was working, I met Tom back in 1993, you know, and uh, uh, he just said, go up and see if you can maybe get on this project. And I told him I'd worked at seminary with uh, Greek and Latin 
uh, electronic databases, which at that time was revolutionary. That's before the internet, you sure. know. <laughs> so uh, we were working sealed gin, set it up, and I was doing all this work for my thesis. So when they found out that I knew how to do this, mm -hmm. I kind of set up the protocols then for uh, the research for the ancient Christian commentary. You wow. know? So, um, so I worked with him kind of by a distance. See, I'd, I'd uh, make door-to-door uh, -door calls during the day, and I did 5,000 door-to-door calls to wow. start my church. And at night from about 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock, I would do the research kind of stuff. So, um, <clears throat> so Did you sleep? Well, you know. <laughs> at 2 o'clock, you got started then on yeah. preparing your sermon. and <laughs> Yeah, that kind of stuff, right? You know, <laughs> I mean, it was... You know, I was young back then. Uh, yeah. Today, I don't think I could do that, uh, you know. But uh, so, you know, um, getting to work with Tom was kind of a gradual process, as I say. I'd, mm. I didn't really talk with him that much until in the year 2000, they decided um, they had only produced two uh, commentaries, two volumes, and they were kind of, um, the grant money was going to run out. So mm. they asked me if I would come up and, uh, you know, do the whole thing. So, wow. I agreed, and so that's really when I really got to start to work with him, you know. And uh, he was uh, he was just an amazing uh, person because he was so giving as a scholar. Mm. You know, he'd let us go and, and do these things and talk with these people that we had no right to be talking to, you know, or doing. I mean, he invited me to write the commentary on John, and I'm like, I'm only a student, you know. <laughs> I don't even have my PhD yet, but, you know, that's the kind of generous person he was, and, wow. you know, we'd go... Uh, over to the Vatican or go, uh, you know, to Egypt and visit with the, the Metropolitan there, and he'd just bring us along and introduce us to these guys. So, you know, if I had to pick one characteristic, it was just that he was so giving as a, wow. and a good friend. Yeah, you know? yeah. That's amazing. I, I um, a couple of years ago when I was working in the, the library as the director of the library, we found some uh, lectures that Tom had given here yeah. at Concordia Seminary, and I think they were just on a, a cassette tape, which if you, if you wanted in 2015, if you wanted to listen to somebody lecture on a cassette tape, you really had to want it because yeah, you had to come sure. to the location and check out the cassette tape. And then you had to have a, a cassette tape player that would actually <laughs> play the thing. Um, so we digitized that and put them all on oh. online. And uh, I wrote up a little blog post on uh, Tom's lecture uh, we we were calling them Throwback Thursdays or Theological Throwback Thursdays, something like that, hmm. and um, and so I, I put it out, and a lot of people responded to that uh, because it uh, was uh, a lecture that Tom had given probably back in the early '90s or maybe even the I think 80s. it was '83. Oh yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah, it was it was a because he had talked before. about that and he um, he very much enjoyed his time here you know yeah. that's the other thing you know like him, people like him like Timothy George you know they talk yeah, about yeah. their time here at Concordia Seminary and they said it was a wonderful time and um, you know they felt very welcome but also they could see the theological gravitas of this place you yeah know? yeah that we're not lightweights we're not just uh, pumping people out to um, you know smile big and ask for more dollars. Um, there's significant theological work that, well, that happens here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you've you've gotten to work with some other some other scholars too, um, and the list could probably go go on and on. Robert Louis Wilkin and yeah, uh, fun. <laughs> um, lots of lots of other people. Well, and you brought him here in my last year of seminary for I a day of exegetical right. reflection. Oh. I'm, uh, Talk about a wonderful mind. He does, is it the Grace New Testament commentary? Well, he did the Church's Bible. Uh, that, okay. that was his main thing. I, oh, yeah. I, sh 
I'm, I'm sure he's done well yeah things. and a few yeah. other things too right <laughs> but he's got one of those commentaries that uh it just reads so pastoral so i like yeah. to reference yeah. it it's it's wonderful well and he credits that to his time here i mm. mean yeah. it was interesting when i talked with him about the possibility of inviting him he said i said you know robert would you consider coming to concordia seminary and he said well yeah, but nobody's ever asked. Wow. <laughs> you know, and I said, well, I'm asking. And, uh, you know, so I think that that shaped him many ways when he was a student here, of course, with Newhouse and all that that crew. Yeah. You know. And if listeners don't know Robert Lewis Wilkin, he, you, you might know the publication First Things, which is this journal uh, mm-hmm. that is written really for the, the church at large, um, both, both kind of Roman Catholics as well as evangelicals. And uh, Wilkin yeah. was a, a general editor and kind of a founding editor of First Things, right? Well, yeah, he worked with the magazine, that's right. And, yeah. and of course, you know, that was another instance where Tom Odin invited me to be a part of that back mm. in 2004. And yeah. um, they had read my commentary on John and wanted to ask my opinion about Mary and Jesus and John, you mm. know. And from then on, they invited me to stay. So it was an wow. interesting, uh, I, I can't even call it serendipitous. I mean, Tom really just gave yeah. those opportunities, you know. And what I think is important in all this conversation isn't, um, I, I get kind of starstruck because I, I look up to these scholars, but the reason that I do look up to these scholars and to your, your work with them is because of how important it is for this ongoing conversation that's happening in our, in our world today uh, with, with Christians of these varying confessions that have, that have found themselves in separate camps and yet are finding ways to still have conversation like Jesus commanded his his children to do, right? Mm-hmm. To um, to to take very seriously his teachings, and yet also to strive for unity and for working together as as yeah. uh, for for one church and, and one. When, you know, and when people hear that, they think, "Oh, you're just uh, agreeing on the lowest common denominator stuff." Uh, I can tell you, there's that's nothing far. There's nothing farther from the truth. I mean. Yeah. You should be in some of our discussions. They get rather heated <laughs> in our disagreements. But um, there's also wonderful areas where we can say, you know, thus says Scripture, and we can agree on it, yeah. Know, yeah. which is wonderful. Excellent. Uh, one thing we like to do with our guests is yeah. ask, how did you get into ministry? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question, you know. Um, I grew up in a pastor's family. Uh, my dad's still a... Still living, he's up in Michigan. Um, he's been retired for a few years, um, and he had um, well, he had three calls. His first call was to North Dakota, so we always ask, you know, who did he take off? But that's terrible. So, <laughs> you know, it was actually a very nice place. He was there for five years, and uh, then he ended up in Iowa for uh, twelve and a half years, and the rest in Michigan. So I got to see kind of what it's like to live in a pastor's family. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, it was rather difficult. And I suppose, uh, you know, I have two older brothers, neither of which went into the ministry. Um, but I, uh, you know, I went all through the Lutheran system, you know, from a two-room uh, schoolhouse uh, from my first through eighth grade. And I uh, went to a Lutheran high school when it was getting started. So we met in a church basement for our first two years. We didn't have a building, you know. Um, and then I, of course, went to Concordia and Arbor, where I got uh, a lot of interest in biblical languages. That was my major. So I think, you know, all of that kind of combined, um, along with just the fact that you got to share Jesus with people and kind of see lives changed, yep. um, which I did get to do, you know, even as a seminary student when I was a missionary in China, you know, and got to um, see people who had never heard the name Jesus, you know, um, 
want to meet them <laughs> and uh, become Christians and even name their, have me name their kids at their baptisms and things. So, you know, all of that, I think, combined, I guess the reason why I wanted to go to the ministry was just because I love Jesus. And I think that um, getting to introduce him to people as pastors do in a special way and at deep points in people's lives, you know, was just... Um, well, rather inviting, you know, yeah. and I will say I, I wasn't naive, <laughs> you know, uh, mm. I knew there was a lot of um, difficulties that could go with it too, and did, frankly, um, it's not easy starting a church, you know, uh, yeah. yeah, so, um, I, you know, and I think it was truly the Spirit's work, and that's, uh, and I can truly say, you know, I've got a son here at the seminary who's in his fourth year, and, um, you know, he at first wasn't going to go into ministry, he was going to go into music, um, but uh, I was driving him to St. Olaf, and then uh, he turns to me and he says, Dad, I need to tell you something, which strikes terror in every parent's heart, <laughs> right. you know. Oh, no, what is it? You know, stop the car. Uh, <clears throat> what do we uh, get ready for this? And he says, Dad, I think I want to be a pastor. I like said, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I was actually uh, my heart leaped, you know, even though I kind of joked with him a bit about it. But, um, you know, so uh, I think he's seen something as well. And it's kind of fun, you know, now to be able to talk with him. And his mother, of course, always says, Stop talking theology. But uh, <laughs> you know, we, uh, we love to. She's do a good that. woman. She is. She is. She keeps us on the straight and narrow yeah. for the most part, except when she's not around. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know if that answers your yeah. question, but yeah, that's no, pretty much it. This, that's everybody's story is slightly different. Uh, my kids, it's my kids aren't my my oldest is about to turn eight, mm. but like I think every pastor, if you have kids, if you've been blessed with children, you you wonder, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is my child gonna grow up to be become a pastor someday? And, and there are times when my sons do things, I'm like, man, if it happens, I'm not gonna be like, no, don't become a pastor. Uh, but I, I also won't push him towards him, like, this is what you have to do. But my, my daughter, Talitha, has already decided that she's going to be a doctor, astronaut, teacher, deaconess. <laughs> well, she can take care of you in your old age. That's well, right. and if you knew my daughter and her ambition, <laughs> she might pull it off. I'm just, that's all I'll say. <laughs> uh, she's a, a sharp little cookie. Maybe she's the first deaconess that will send to outer space. I mean, no, there you go. I, I, who to uh, be a, who to performs be a, an operation? Right? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> on on Mars, exactly. Uh, oh man, that's great. Well, yeah, that's remarkable. Uh, both your story and that your your son followed in the footsteps, uh, and of course, we're glad to have him here. I'm sure, he's, yeah, gonna be he's a glad to be here. Wonderful you know. pastor, and he's seen the challenges too. You know? Of course. Um, yeah, so that's all part of the fun, as I always like to say. And Tom Oden always wondered, why do you say that? And I said, well, because otherwise you'd cry sometimes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so you just got to say it's part of the fun. Uh, well, uh, so today uh, we're continuing on our study of the parables. This will be a, the third episode. Um, and I would break down the formula of how we're doing that, but that would take some of the mystique out of it. And so, But today our parable comes from the Gospel of Matthew, in particular Matthew chapter 18, uh, which is usually called like the parable of the unforgiving servant or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, you know, and if you look in the Greek New Testament, they don't have all these little friendly headers. Nonetheless, uh, Ben, I believe you have the text ready. 21 through 35. That is the text. All right. Yeah, right. In the Greek text, in the in the manuscripts, uh, you know, not only are there no headers or chapters or verses, they don't even break lines. Nope. Um, they don't even. They don't even have punctuation in the earliest ones. They were trying to save space, so 
just stick the letters and um you know the, the human eye has a way of kind of well, mostly figuring out you you've done these little puzzles right where it's like what does this say and you could just tell what it says even if the letters are all bunched together for 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 those of us who haven't been studying ancient languages for a very long time by no breaks he means no spaces between words in right. the original manuscripts and no punctuation yeah, yeah. Right. well and that's why by the way they read out loud you know oh, right yeah and, and lectors had to be you know it wasn't you just go up and read the scriptures today you know it was reading they had to know how to do that yeah and you had to, you had to have um you couldn't take for granted that people could read for sure so reading yeah. was a serious skill that um Maybe maybe there would even be some mystique around that. Whoa, mm -hmm. you can you can kind of uh, you know look at those weird squiggles on the page and actually you know understand what they mean. Oh <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Whoa. Come to seminary, we'll teach you how to read. <laughs> well, I was gonna say to celebrate uh, our education a little bit. I've been blessed to be in places where there are some fairly old manuscripts, and. I've been able. To, I can't. I can't just pick up any random text and just read it verbatim, unless it's like the Gospel of John, because his Greek is fairly easy compared to some of the other writers. But nonetheless, and even in like the those old manuscripts where there are no breaks, no pauses, you can start to pick out yeah. the text and like, yeah. oh, this is from here. And it's so you know you want to learn ancient languages. Come to CSL. It's we'll kind of like you. a puzzle, right? We have <laughs> yeah. we have several uh, people that have worked on ancient manuscripts, but uh, we'll get we'll get on <laughs> we'll to. Do this uh, all day. Yeah to our our text here so all right if uh listeners if you're following along matthew 18 starting at verse 21 then peter came up and said to him lord how often will my brother sin against me and i forgive him as many as seven times jesus said to him i do not say to you seven times but 77 times therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Woof. Right. You got a whistle after yeah. that one, right? <laughs> right. Woof, Jesus. Yeah, have a nice Bring day. Bring it, man. <laughs> this is the gospel of the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Praise to you, O Christ. <laughs> there is some there is some gospel there. there but um it it certainly stings a little bit uh when it maybe first hits us. Yeah. Well as I, I think I was telling you in a previous conversation, we used to do this uh parable for us a puppet skit. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, Tell and us about that. That the... was uh, that was back in my 
boy, my singing days when I used to be able to sing at Concordia and Arbor, we'd travel around the country and sing, but we'd also do puppet skits. And so I was this, I did the king, and I love doing that because, you know, and then I'd have, you know, my duck, there was a duck was cross-eyed and wearing a crown on his head, you know, and trying to talk to this whiny little servant. And, oh, man, we, we had fun with that because, uh, you know, basically scaring the heck out of him. You know, and the kids would be like, you know, that's not fair. And so we had, anyway, sorry, that would take us so far afield. <laughs> but no, was, I, think, I think that we could, uh, you, you need to incorporate this into your teaching now today. Oh, right. You know, we, an Athanasius puppet and a Cyril... <laughs> we could no, get just... you know get some uh, cross-eyed ducks out there. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, it was a it was a good way to show the kids about forgiveness, though, yeah. and they got yeah. it very much. Yeah. You know, and the fact that this guy was so ungrateful. You know. Well, and it's a good it's a good um, lesson for our listeners in the fact that you can be both a very serious scholar of uh, the early church and also do puppet shows. <laughs> and um, man, is that ever a skill that you? that you can both do deep theology and also communicate it to children. Well, um, and, yeah. and maybe that's a real test of somebody's theology. Uh, Luther mentioned this several times, right? Yeah. Um, in, in explaining simple doctrines like the doctrine of the church. Uh, can you explain it in a way that a kid would understand it? Well, yeah, look at the catechisms, right? Yeah, you know? right, so right. I always think if you can't make it intelligible to somebody, um, and I will say, you know, sorry, if you ask me a difficult question, I'll give you a difficult answer. You know? oh, and ask me a simple question, I'll give you a simple answer. But with kids, I mean, the scriptures are clear, you know, um, and so we should be able to communicate these wonderful truths to them. And uh, and I think, you know, that's the same way I look at scholarship, by the way. Mm. I think if yeah. we're just doing it to impress the academy, uh, kind of forget about it. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's for the church. So this is a, a prime case, you know, it's all about forgiveness. But that's only scratching the surface of what we want to say, of course. Yeah. 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 Good. So... Well, just imagine, like, Peter asked this question, and Jesus is like, oh, you know, twice as good. After, <laughs> yeah. after that, you just you just walk away. It's yeah. not a big deal. But it, but the, the numbers uh, in this parable are, are kind of begin striking. So seven is a very well-known, perfect number scripturally. And so to double down on seven means... He's not. He's not. He's not giving a finite number of how many times you're supposed to forgive somebody. He's just, just forgive them forever and always. And then he tells this parable of why. And so when I was reading and doing a little bit of studying, do you say denarii or denarii hmm. or denarii? Denarii. Denarii. Yeah, plural. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't even remember how I pronounced it exactly, but I, I think I probably said denarii. I, I don't know. I, I, so I, anyway, that's not the point of the parable. I'm getting lost. But this idea of 10,000, and this is what, uh, threw me off in the commentary I was reading. Maybe it might have been Craig Blomberg, is the estimation of how much 10,000 denarii is. I didn't appreciate what it said. It said, like, either millions or trillions. And Mm. that's so far apart. Is there any, do you know of any guess of what it might be? Boy, I hadn't really thought about this for a while. I think didn't didn't Gibbs talk a little bit about this that that um, the that number of talents was basically like uh, several lifetimes. Oh, I said denarii and it's talents. It's talents. Um, the the oh. next one is denarii, so <laughs> that's the smaller. <laughs> yeah, that's smaller. That's a smaller amount. Yeah. Smaller right. amount. But I I think the the um, I mean it would be like. Uh, 
you know, somebody owing somebody uh, several lifetimes worth, worth of, of, of money. So, you know, back in the day when that commentary was written, it was probably one number. But now yeah, um, that we've had uh, 2008 and now the, the pandemic uh, right. thing, you know, uh, what's another trillion dollars? You know, I was going to say, we just ask our federal government. Yeah, yeah. right, right, right. But 10,000 balances. Essentially, it's just an unpayable debt. It's Are an you, unpayable you, debt. And then you have to wonder, what did he do to rack? I mean, because he's a servant. It's not like he's a federal government. This is just a guy. Well, right. I think he was in the federal government, though. Mm-hmm. See, oh. <laughs> I think he, no, I mean, I think he actually was a tax collector. Oh, you know, oh. and I think that um, part of his job was to, you know, collect taxes and then make sure the master gets it. But he kind of hadn't quite forwarded it all on, shall we say, you know? And I'm not saying he was embezzling, but he might have been. He, had a, he made a bad bet on a chariot race or something right? yeah, and, yeah. and or, uh, or lost it all. gladiator fight that just didn't right. go his way, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that's part of kind of the backstory, if you will, that this, sure. this guy... Um, he wasn't. He wasn't just somebody who was bringing, you know, wine to the the king or something. These were guys who were supposed to be in charge of the king's treasury and make sure they, you know, collected it. And, he, and the king got his take, which was supposed to be everything, <laughs> you right. know. And then they'd get paid out of it. Can we talk a little bit about kings in the the ancient world? Because I think I think when people think of certainly when Americans hear the word king, they don't, we don't know what to do with that because America has never had a king. Uh, well. Uh, maybe for a, a, a yeah, short little time. while, uh, but we decided that once for all. Yeah, tell our right? friends in Britain about that. But, <laughs> yeah, um, but but in am I right that in the ancient world, a king wasn't necessarily an, a ruler of a nation, like an entire group of people. You you would have a king like in a city. Yeah. Right. Regional um, kings kind of thing. Yeah. So it wasn't like a king of England or a king of Spain or a king of. Germany. I mean, even those are nate. They're they're part of the twentieth century or nineteenth century nation state. But back in the time, kings may would have overseen far fewer people than an entire yeah, country. I suppose right? we could just look at the Old Testament, right? You yeah. see, I mean, Israel wasn't that big, but right. it, well, like, right. you know, a nation isn't kind of the that's a that's a twentieth century term, right. almost kind right. of thing, or. Like, yeah, so I, I think there's that. Um, and ruler of, course, of a tribe? Like almost? a tribe or, um, I mean, because you did have empires still. Of course, yeah, you had the yeah. Seleucid Empire and those kind of things, right. which is probably where some of this background is too, you know. Um, but you don't think of King Herod, right? Yeah. He yeah. was not king of a huge empire, but he was yeah. had enough juice, shall we say, to, yeah. you know, and he had enough financial interests that uh, he would have been a formidable person to deal with, let's yeah. put it like that. Yeah. So I think that's... I think that's right. You know? yeah. We would think maybe of like a, a governor or a mayor. Um, yeah. Would uh, be. You know, and think of, I was thinking too in terms of how cities often were kind of the centers rather than right. just large geographical things. So right. same thing like in Alexandria or wherever. So, yeah. So, I mean, at any rate, this is somebody kind of like... Um, Jeff Bezos. No, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, he's, he's king of an empire. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's about the 10,000 talents. <laughs> right, right. Elon Musk. Or, right, right. Yeah. Uh, they have their little empires that, they they're, that they're ruling, for sure. So this guy amasses this, again, insurmountable debt. He does. And then, uh, you know, he's about to be sold, him and his wife and his children, and he begs for mercy. Yep. And uh, the king forgives this, or, or not totally, gives him an opportunity 
uh, to come up with payment, uh, but nonetheless, still offers mercy, right? Yeah. Relents from what would have been just for, uh, again, amassing an insurmountable debt. I'm just going to keep saying that because I that's it's insurmountable. Uh, and the first thing he does is try to shake somebody else's pockets. <laughs> I, I don't want to call him a jerk, but... I think it was way worse than that. <laughs> I was going to say, you'd be kind. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, when you look at this, I mean, and the fact that the king is, he's doing his reckoning, see, here at the end, so he's getting all his accounts, and this guy's only one guy, right. you know, and I suppose, so in some ways you could look and say, well, you know, why is he giving this guy a break? And not these guys and this guy and this guy. Because I'm sure the king had lots of people collecting taxes, not, yeah. not just him. Um, and, of course, you know, all details in a parable, we always have to be careful. But I do think that's kind of the fact that it's accounts, you know. Um, right. And so, you know, that fact that he can then, in front of everybody, go and, as you said, shake down this guy who owes, let's... What would you call the 100 denarii as opposed to the 10 or 100 talents, you know? It's kind of insignificant, you know, and you'd think that, that if a king's letting a guy do his accounts in the first place, you got to have something to put up as collateral, right? Yeah. Now, right? Yeah, yeah. And so he should have been able to collect on some of that, unless he frittered it away. But on a hundred talent, or a hundred denarii, whatever it is, it's it's hardly anything. Right, you know? right. Yeah. Not even a, yeah, not even a drop in the bucket of what he owes. What what struck me was, um, as we as we were reading through it, is that it was um, so this unforgiving servant? It was his peers that, yeah. that were basically like, "Hey, wait a minute! Um, the, our our coworker here, uh, who we all know, kind of stiffed the master. He he just did this, and so the part of I think the the parable is, um, you know, we're always our lives are always on display, yeah. and our brothers and sisters are are watching, and um, it's I think totally fair and legitimate for um, brothers and sisters to hold each other accountable. And and the brothers and sisters did hold this guy accountable for something that I think he thought he was going to get away with. Yeah. Why weren't they more ticked off at the fact that he got, you know, forgiven and they right. had to still pay all their accounts? You know, that's one thing I always wonder about. Um, sh- it, it, and this is speculative, but like, again, in, in respect to the parable... Again, you, you, you're thinking you have a Jeff Bezos-type empire and uh, one of your employees made a mistake and you're missing $15 billion or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, I, okay, maybe 15 bill for, for Jeff Bezos is, is like 100 denarii. But, <laughs> but it's certainly way it's more than what anybody, any regular worker would earn in a lifetime. Right, and Jeff's... Well, yeah, all of us for the most part. Yeah. And, and Jeff Bezos forgives it. It's I would imagine it's probably not the first time this master has forgiven. For the sake of the parable, it, it appears that way. But he's he's he ha- if, to do that naturally. It has to be a merciful king. Yeah. Already before the account takes place. Yeah. And the fact that he thought he could actually presume on him. I mean, I know in Oriental culture, that was kind of one way you do it. I mean, I actually had students in Ethiopia. They had a class monitor who thought my homework was too much for him one time. And he came up and he literally got on his knees and said, have mercy on us. (laughs) I mean, I wish our students here would do that. Mm. But, you know, uh, there's that kind of ethos, you know. We're we're too proud. 
<laughs> you know, throw yourself on the mercy of the of the court, so to speak. And I mean, yeah. So I think you're right. You know, one thing that I'm I'm just thinking of. So, so when the parable starts, right? Um, the the conversation between Peter and Jesus, right? At least in the English, is how many times should I forgive? This I was listening to to what you were saying, and, and it, this kind of struck me that. The, the conversation starts with how many times should I forgive? And notice the parable actually isn't talking about how many times the the king forgives the un, the servant. It's amount. It's amount. Yeah. So I, w- I wonder if there's something going on in the Greek where um, how much... Uh, I, I need to uh, flip over from English to Greek... Um, but is the conversation about how many times or is it about how much? I mean, and those are kind of different things. Can't right? you say yes to both? Because, I mean, because to, to forgive somebody completely or, I mean, we still struggle with this. But to, to forgive the way that God has forgiven us and we're now we're jumping into explanation of the parable it's it's both and yeah i think that's right actually because i mean you know how many times well um and you could say well i'll forgive you for one really big thing (laughs) you know (laughs) but forget about the small stuff or something or vice versa i suppose i don't know um it's an interesting question ben and i i do think that it is about kind of uh the magnitude of the debt i suppose you know uh, and that could come either with how many times or, or amount. Yeah. And as you keep emphasizing, Micah, you know, the fact that it's insurmountable, you know, is, um, is a key factor in all this. And, and so after he wrongfully shakes down his counterpart and gets snitched on, as we would say, <laughs> and, he, and he goes and the master calls him back, uh, now he's in prison until the debt is paid off. And if, if you're unaware, uh, one thing you don't have in prison is a job and a way to make money. And he's in there until he can pay it off. And the debt was already insurmountable. Mm-hmm. And so it seems to me that he might be in prison for a very, very long time, a.k.a. forever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's where the parable ends. And, and, I was, I, and, and this isn't a facetious question. It's just one of those things that I think it's important to talk about, especially in light of this parable. How important is forgiveness? Yeah. Gosh. You know, it's right at the center of the Lord's Prayer. You know, yeah. forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And Jesus seemed to think that uh, that's at the heart and core of the Christian message, frankly. For heart sure. and core of our liturgy, everything, yeah. Well, and this, this parable also comes right after the whole Matthew 18 section, which right. we quote all the time uh, when somebody sins against us, right? Because we want this, like, Proper procedure, proper procedure. Yeah. Um, and and so uh, this is uh, just to rehearse it again. This, if somebody sins against you, go directly to them, and if they don't uh, apologize, then take it to a couple of people, and then if they don't, and and go to the person, and if he still doesn't apologize, then take it to the whole church. Um, and so there, maybe maybe that's part of uh, what Matthew is doing here, right? Is so how many times do I do that? How many times do yeah. I go through the, 
the formal procedure that our synod has set up for uh, grievances. Dispute resolution. Right? So I followed how, all the bylaws, Jesus. Come how, on. how many times, what amount, and to what lengths should I, the offended, go through to, to seek a resolution to the wrongdoing? And I think I'd even add to that that Jesus, just like in you know the, the the Sermon on the Mount, it isn't just going through the proper procedure and everything. Right. But how does he end it? You know that you forgive your brother from your heart. Mm-hmm. You know, and so he's he's <laughs> like you can do all the procedures you want, but if you haven't forgiven him, it's game over. So not only do you have to go through great lengths to get them to say sorry, when you say I forgive you, you actually have to mean it? Is that uh, what you're well, saying? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, is that every situation? <laughs> oh, so there's all kinds of, of ways that this is, uh, I think, hitting us in our, our day-to-day lives. I know I'm thinking about a couple of situations where I probably need to keep on uh, working on forgiving people. Oh, yeah. um, but I'm, I'm interested to hear a little bit about what's going through the head of our patristic scholar, our, our church father scholar. And I think there's a number of different angles that, um, at least for me, that, that this might be uh, going off um, in, in, in a mind is, is it about forgiveness or about parables. Um, what, what comes to mind when you think of the church hmm. fathers and some of the conversations that we've been having? Yeah. Well, you know, um, it's good that you started, for instance, at verse 21. I mean, they love, they love the idea of numbers, for instance. So mm-hmm. when you get that 70 times 7 kind of thing, you know, they might be thinking about, you know, later on, that's one short of the year, year of Jubilee kind of thing. Um, or, well, depending on how you do it, the math. But, um, you know, they love the idea of numbers and each number having significance. And you had brought out the kind of the fulfillment idea. And, of course, also... You know, seven having the connotation of rest, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and I think about that with the parable, just in terms of the fact when you don't forgive someone, you know, you don't have rest, you know, uh, you're not at rest uh, in your mind or in your soul. And I think, you know, somebody like Origen would probably take that and run with it because of the fact that, um, you know, when he's looking at all of these texts, he's saying, what do they say to the hearers today? You know, and um, the fact that forgiveness is is important because of our relationship with God, and we have that, but also, you know, forgiving your brother from your heart does something for that brother, but uh, I think Origen would also say it does something for and to you, you know, as you um, seek to uh, have that relationship with God, you know, and Paul talks about this even with prayer, you know, um, don't let the sun go down on your anger, you know, mm. and these kind of things, because all of that, those are impediments, you know, to our, our spiritual life and our prayer life with God even. Um, so forgiveness isn't just about, well, let's make sure I got all my, you know, accounts settled, you know, with God, because then I can get to heaven, (laughs) you know, and I think the church fathers are recognizing that there's a whole nother level of where this speaks to the inner, inner soul, inner being, um, that Jesus has actually given us something very good for our own souls, you know, not just for the benefit of that other person. It's, it's two ways. Yeah. I, I love reading the Bible along with the church fathers because they oftentimes will uh, kind of surprise me in how they're reading a text. And I'm, I'm thinking, man, I didn't even think about rest and the number of seven and Sabbath and how that all factors in here. But the church fathers do. They pick they up do. on that kind of stuff all the time. And it, it's, it strikes me that 
um, well, the church fathers are just way better at reading the Bible than we are sometimes. <laughs> they, they, we, they memorize the Bible. I mean, yeah, the guys yeah. like Didymus, you know, who's blind at four, uh, he, he memorized the whole Bible. And, you know, and you're a patristic scholar, too. You don't, you don't let people know that, you know. <laughs> but, you're, you know, you, you and your work with Tertullian, I think you see this kind of the same thing. Um, why I got attracted to reading the Fathers, frankly, in the first place is because when I was reading some, some of the commentaries, we're talking about the 80s, you know, <laughs> that's how old I am, but, you know, they were all about this higher critical stuff, sure. and I just found that vacuous, yeah. you know, and then I'd read Chrysostom, and I'd go, he's actually sounds like a pastor to me, right. and what a pastor might say about a text, and may even preach, and I'm thinking, this is the stuff I want to read, right. you know, and prepare right. my studies, so... Um, I recognize that all these guys, almost all of them, were, you know, ordained pastors, you know, and some in charge of pastors, too. So I think there's something to that then, you know. Yeah. They're not I, reading the scriptures for the academy. No, right, exactly. And they're, and they're reading in such different ways than what, than what we read. So I was working on a psalm um, a couple of months back, and um, I, I preached on it in chapel. But I came across this place. It was... Uh, the Lord kneels to us to listen uh, to our voice. Hmm. And and Basil said, don't think here about the incarnation and about God taking on human form and kneeling down, but rather think about a God who can even hear blood on the ground crying out to him. God is that attuned to our bodies that he, he listens to every part of what he has made like a like a physician that even if the voice of the person can't say this is what's wrong with me god listens to our body mm-hmm. and the stuff that he created and i was like whoa yeah i didn't get that when i read that song but that's amazing yeah. and uh and and it it just wow mm-hmm. um reading through the fathers it just it makes me uh, appreciate the scriptures all the more because they they really did appreciate every part of the scriptures and were Definitely. really uh, slowly uh, pondering this, chewing on this all mm-hmm. the time. And they'd be the first to say, make sure you read the scriptures. You right, know, Don't right, just read exactly. us. Yeah. But yeah. when you read them, you're, it's like you're reading scripture because they're quoting scripture all over the place. And in yeah. fact, they might put five texts together yeah. in this kind of matrix of meaning, yeah. shall we say, because... Yeah. And this is what I love about them is they think there's one divine author, even yeah. as they recognize there are you know human authors, they truly do give obeisance to the Holy Spirit. Right. And how refreshing, you know. Uh, and it fits very much with our Lutheran reading. Right. Yeah. God actually knew what He was doing yeah. when He was when and He was speaking these scriptures into every existence. word is sacred too. Yeah, that's right. Know? There is no nothing extraneous in Scripture. Yeah. 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 Mm. That's fantastic. So. What kind of advice would you give to somebody who is thinking about coming to seminary to study for pastoral ministry or a diaconal ministry as a deaconess? Um, you you uh, hmm. you alluded to something that you were going to say to us earlier, and I I want to hear that again. Um, yeah, I'm getting older. It... I can't remember what I was alluding to. <laughs> you said run. <laughs> yeah, run. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I did say that. Yeah, when my students asked me here, you know, I said, "Well, the advice I give is run," and I I do that, and you know, and again, some of this comes from reading the fathers afterwards. You know, to read somebody like Gregory of Nazianzus or uh, John Chrysostom when they're talking about how they came into the ministry, uh, I mean, they recognize that what they were embarking on was not 
something that should be entered into lightly, just yeah. like marriage, for instance. And they often term it in terms of marriage, you know, because you're entering into a relationship here that is, and you're taking vows even, you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, do it deliberately and with thought and all of that, um, but also with a, a bit of confidence. And I say that a bit of confidence, with confidence, because, yeah. you know, God's working through this. Yeah. And, and that's what kind of gives you permission to be a little brave, you know, a lot brave. Uh, and I always say, cast your bread on the waters kind of thing. But right. when you've got, you know, the Holy Spirit working with you, um, it's okay to be scared. But yeah. it's also okay to know that, you know, God's going to bless this and going to work through you um, in some pretty amazing ways. Yep. Um, and we're awful privileged to be able to, you know, do it ourselves. So I would say, look at the privilege, count the cost. <laughs> But also then trust in the Lord with all your heart mm. and lean not on your own understanding. But he doesn't tell you to just check out either. Right. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Uh, would you tell us a little bit? So you mentioned uh, Gregory Nazianzus yeah. and, um, and John Chrysostom. Um, and they, they wrote specific works about um, pastoral ministry. Yeah. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about those? Because I'm thinking... Um, as, as people are listening to this podcast, uh, one of the things that we're trying to do is resource them. And this oh, sure. podcast is mm -hmm. a resource. But I also think we, we want to uh, recommend good books yeah. uh, to, to read. Well, uh, with uh, Gregor of Nazianzus, he wrote these what we call orations, um, speeches, if you will, speechifying, you know. Um, but he was quite the orator. And, um, but he also was a reluctant uh, pastor, mm. you know. And um, when uh, he was getting kind of pushed into this by his friend Basil, he um, fled from the ministry, you know, he actually ran away and people, he had to write a defense of his flight is what it's called, but it's basically, you know, um, kind of a defense of why he fled because he, he just realized the awesomeness of what he was going to be entering into yeah. as a pastor. And uh, so it's, it's um, that's that first text. And the second one is John Chrysostom's On the Priesthood. Um, and you can get it like in a St. Vladimir's edition. That's not too expensive. That's the one that I read, yeah. Yeah, and uh, Chrysostom kind of does the same thing, you know. And um, when my students read this, I actually do a course ministry in the early church, and they're like, these guys are really just trying to justify themselves. And I said... <laughs> You know, for their refusal to go into the ministry, but they end up in, as pastors anyway. Well, we hear these stories all the time from people that are like, yeah, I was going to come to the seminary, but I, I decided to wait. And then, uh, you know, 20 years went by and I couldn't get away from it. Yeah. And so I finally, uh, the Holy Spirit kind of grabbed a hold of me and I couldn't, I couldn't do anything else. And that's kind of like... Chrysostom's story, basically. I think that's exactly right, yeah. you know. Yeah. And um, these guys just recognize the awesomeness of the ministry. Um, but, you know, once they're there, they also recognize the awesomeness of it in the sense of how they get to serve God and his people. So, yeah. um, And I think it's helpful for our students to recognize it's okay to have some fears and doubts, you know. And yeah. these guys will tell you about them, you know, and they'll even talk about when people don't like your sermons and stuff like that and, <laughs> and what you say. <laughs> some of the stuff they're like, I don't know, maybe shouldn't repeat it all, but they're, you know, express some of that frustration too. So it's okay to be frustrated. Um, God's prophets were and his apostles were. Yeah, I remember reading a, a sermon from Augustine where he's uh, preaching on uh, the uh, the genealogy of Jesus in, mm. in Matthew. And he's he's saying, you know, I was preaching on this text last week and all you, you were falling asleep and stuff. And, <laughs> and uh, I just think, man, you know, it wasn't much different in the 5th century than it is today yeah, in some it. respects. Um, 
And you're always trying to kind of, and he's, I think he's saying this with a big smile and he's, he's joking around you. It doesn't jump off the page that way when you're reading a book of, of sermons, but you can, you get the sense that these were real people and they really were pastors and um, serving God's people in, in very real ways. That's exactly right. How about for a deaconess? Um, Are there, are there writings from the early church that you would point to that would be helpful for deaconesses, either either women that are writing in the the early centuries of the church, or um, yeah. anything specifically about diaconal work. There's a few things actually. So there is these sayings of the desert mothers, like Amma Sinclatica and um, Theodora and others. You know that you can actually find these collections that are taken from Cassian's works. You know, so they kind of collect them together to show there was a, there were women ascetics as well as men. In fact, the women probably dominated the ascetical kind of. Uh, movement in the early church. There were a lot of women virgins in the churches who um, were held up as, you know, um, examples, and frankly, uh, to aspire to. Mm. So you've got those kind of things, but I'd say that that text, there's also, of course, Macrina, who was um, Basil and Gregory's uh, sister, mm. who frankly, she was the one who introduced him to you know, Basil would have just spent his time being a monk, you know, and in, in, in contemplation, which is frankly what I'd like to do. You know, just go go to Southern California, right, the beach, and uh, contemplate God. But uh, Macrina said, you know, get busy, get to work. You know? And so she brought him kind of back in. And, but Gregory of Nyssa actually has a dialogue with her, uh, the anima on the soul, on uh, the resurrection, sorry, it is, um, where you can see kind of Macrina's line of thought. Um, there's, of course, also the letters that uh, Chrysostom had with... Um, well, uh, women benefactors, uh, women were often the bankrolling the church. Right, you know? And right. Um, so Chrysostom has these letters that he wrote to both during his time in Antioch and also in his time in Constantinople, mm. which are wonderful examples where Chrysostom speaks of the, you know, the... Um, well, the, the benefits and the, the glories of women in the church and how they serve God, even wow. as he also challenges them sometimes, and yeah. they struggled with issues of pride and things like that, that um, he has to call them on the carpet for, I suppose. But, you know, so you've got those texts. And then, of course, even just the liturgical texts where you can see, um, uh, let's say, in the didascali and some of these texts where you can see the prayers for the deaconesses, you know, mm. who are going to be installed in their service in the church. And they're just beautiful prayers that kind of rehearse the history of women in the Bible and then how this is continuing with the, the early church. So, you know, um, there's more stuff out there, but that's a start. That's fantastic. I love it. I I um, I love reading the fathers uh, because I really do feel, and, and mothers, I, because I feel like I'm reading the Bible with them yeah. rather than instead of the Bible. So this has been a great conversation. Thank yeah. you very much. I think we could, uh, the conversation should, could just go on and on and on, but uh, great stuff. That's usually the case. You get a, a few pastors in the same room. You talk about <laughs> God's word together. Uh, and just remember, each one of us has uh, accrued our own insurmountable debt of sin already in our lives, and yet Jesus overcame it, not with silver and gold, but with his holy, innocent, and precious blood Amen. for each and every one of us uh, for the sake of our eternal life. And he has graciously and mercifully brought us into this body where we get to gather together and do things like talk about his parables for an hour hey this has been another episode of under the fig tree uh thank you for joining us and if uh you know anybody who you think should listen to this conversation uh please clue them in and share it with them we'll see you next time <laughs>